Hello and thank you for joining us for this edition of Stratfor Talks, a podcast focused on geopolitics and world affairs from Stratfor.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. The next chapter in the future of the European Union comes when France holds its highly contested general election. With the fate of Europe's common currency and the potential for another referendum on EU membership in the balance, we'll speak with Stratfor's senior Europe analyst, Adriano Bassoni, to understand the underlying forces at play. Other EU member states are not the only ones watching the French election closely. Stratfor's senior Eurasia analyst Lauren Goodrich and Europe analyst Mark Fleming-Williams will come by to explore Russian efforts to influence the outcome of elections in general and the upcoming French election in particular. And we'll also see just how the French are responding. Then Stratfor chief product officer Ken Moranian joins the podcast to discuss some exciting new innovations coming soon for our readers at Stratfor.com. Thanks for joining us. With me today is Strat4 Senior Europe Analyst uh, Adriano Bassoni to talk about our upcoming French elections. Adriano, in, in Europe, the, the question on everyone's lips is what is going to happen to, to France uh, going into the elections and then the impact on Europe from the elections? I was wondering if you, you could set the scene for me a little bit. You know, why are these elections so important for France and Europe? And, and who are the key players that we're seeing emerge at the moment? Well, France will see a series of very important elections this year. First, uh, France will hold a presidential election in two rounds in April and May, and then it will hold election for the National Assembly, the Parliament, in, in June, which means that during the next couple of months, there will be a significant uh, change in, the, in, in, in politicians and, and faces and in, in the French leadership. Uh, and we have to keep in mind that the presidential elections and the parliamentary elections will take place against the backdrop of relatively low economic growth. The French economy is currently growing by around 1%, which is uh, better than during the worst years of the economic crisis, but it's still below the, the levels of, of economic growth that France saw in the 1980s or in the 1990s. And it's also dealing with relatively high unemployment, uh, which is currently at around 10%, which is relatively high for French standards and, and even for EU standards. At the same time, the elections happen against the background of social tensions. Uh, migration remains a big issue in France uh, over time, over, over decades, uh, France has seen a significant arrival of, of migrants who located on, 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 on enclaves uh, in, in France's largest cities, uh, the famous banlieues, which are often the, the place for riots, for crimes, and in, even in some cases for radicalization. And this creates social frictions in, in at least two directions. On the one hand, uh, the, the, the French uh, feel that their identity is under threat, and of course, considering the recent terror attacks in, in France, Belgium and other places, they also think that their security is under threat. But the migrants themselves uh, are, 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 are critical of a political and social system that makes it very difficult for them to integrate into the French society. We have uh, examples of second or even third generation struggling to, to, to integrate. And finally, this combination of relatively low economic growth and social tensions has led to social discontent with the, with the traditional parties. We've seen that a large number of, of French voters are tired of the traditional mainstream political parties and are supporting outsiders. And we see that opinion polls put nationalist 
Marine Le Pen from the National Front in the first position. She's been around for a very long time, but she has never held office. So she presents herself as an outsider. We see uh, former uh, economy minister Emmanuel Macron in the second position. He has also been around for a while, but he, he, he quits the government just in time to present himself as a newcomer. And then we have other traditional parties polling behind so the, the, the traditional center-right Republican Party and the Socialist Party and, and other left-wing parties. But overall, we see that two of the three most important candidates are outsiders and are critical of the, of the political establishment in the country. And this is a trend that we've been seeing uh, across Europe at the moment, isn't it? Is this wave of sort of nationalistic fervor and anti-immigration sentiment has has led to to people having an opportunity in politics they might not have had before? Exactly, uh, nationalist parties have existed in Europe for a very long time, for decades. But we have seen how in Europe the financial crisis evolved into an economic crisis, which in turn evolved into an unemployment crisis. And there are hundreds of thousands of voters across the continent that feel that they are not perceiving the alleged uh, benefits of globalization and that they resist uh, the free movement of people, the free movement of goods, services, capital, which is a very serious situation for the European Union because those are the very same principles upon which the European Union was built. And we see that uh, that will uh, be a, a very important theme for the French election. According to opinion polls, uh, Marine Le Pen will make it to the second round of the of the presidential election. According to polls, she would be defeated in the second election, no matter who her rival is. But of course, we have seen with, with the Brexit referendum and with Trump's election in the US that opinion polls have recently failed to identify or to or to measure the, the, the extent to which nationalist and anti-system uh, feelings penetrate in the, in the electorate. So I, I do think that it will be a, a very tight uh, election and the results will be much closer than what the polls currently predict. And clearly one of the reasons why we're tracking this so closely is that there is an impact for the European Union and the Eurozone. France is the Eurozone's second biggest economy. And what happens, you know, if France has a sudden change in direction or a change in policy, then that will have um, implications that will ripple out uh, throughout Europe. So what do you think are some of the, the, the major implications we could see, uh, depending on how the elections go? Well, if we see a victory by the National Front, of course, the Eurozone will be under massive pressure. Uh, the National Front is saying that it will hold a, a referendum on France's membership in the Eurozone. And I think that if that happens, if there is a referendum, there is a serious chance that the Eurozone collapses before the vote even takes place because people across Europe will not wait to know the, the result of the referendum to plan their moves. So the sole announcement of, 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 a, of a referendum would probably trigger a, a run on, on many European banks because people in countries like Spain, Italy, Greece uh, will be fearing that their savings could be converted into national currencies. So they will be trying to move their savings to safer places in Germany or, 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 or maybe in the United States, hoping that their savings would not be converted into Spanish peseta or Italian lira, but into German Deutschmark, for instance. So, so there could be a run on European banks even before uh, such a referendum takes place. And even if uh, the National Front does not honor its promise to hold a referendum, other campaign promises, such as the introduction of a tariff on, on imports or, or 
taxing companies that hire non-French workers go against the principles upon which the European Union w was created. So one way or another, the whole system will be under massive threats. If the moderates win, of course, this doomsday scenario will not materialize uh, in the immediate term, but even a moderate government will try to shake the status quo to introduce measures to make the French economy more competitive, to try to reform labor legislation. And these kinds of things will, will generate resistance uh, among trade unions and, and, and workers in general. The moderate government would also try to reform the European Union. Uh, we have seen uh, strong criticism. Most mainstream parties are critical of, of, of the technocrats in Brussels, and they, they have said they will try to repatriate powers back to national parliaments. Uh, and of course, security and defense are very important issues for France. So uh, no matter who is in charge, I think France will push for, for greater military and security cooperation in Europe. Well, certainly there's a lot to look forward to in uh, 2017. And I mean, you reflected on a lot of this in a piece you did recently on Stratford.com about a storm brewing over Europe. And it certainly seems like uh, those clouds are gathering over the continent at the moment. Uh, Adriano, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you. Here in a moment, we'll be joined by senior Eurasia analyst Lauren Goodrich and Europe analyst Mark Fleming-Williams to explore Russian efforts to influence the upcoming French elections. But first, Joshua Cook sits down with Stratford Chief Product Officer Ken Moranian to highlight some exciting innovations coming to Stratford.com this spring. Hi, I'm Joshua Cook, and I'm sitting here with Stratforce Chief Product Officer Ken Moranian to talk about some of the changes and updates that we're about to unveil at Stratfor.com. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I wonder if you can give us a sense of what you're looking at and seeing as we move to this next generation for Stratfor. I've been at Stratfor for about a year, and you know, it's just about as soon as I got here, I got to see an amazing amount of activity going on, and I got to understand the process of uh, all of the analytical work and uh, the rigor and the passion and the commitment that our team of researchers and analysts and writers uh, you know, to get insight out of our members. I also got to look at the customer base and, you know, read the comments that come in and talk to customers as well and saw how passionate they are and committed to Stratfor. You know, we have a great following. So this is amazing internal strength. It is amazing pull from customers for the insights that we create here. But one thing was clear was that we couldn't really serve it up in ways that customers needed to consume it. So right away, our minds kind of shifted to how can we build a modern platform that supports the consumption of insight and forecast and analysis is so critical to our customers in terms of how they make decisions in ways that serve them better, right? In ways that make the content more consumable and uh, just more navigable. So um, I'm very excited about this product. I'm very excited, and I think our customers are going to love it. We talk about that, that, that expanded user experience and the mm -hmm. ability to interact with content in new ways. Mm -hmm. Just to be clear, that goes much further than design updates and changes. Mm -hmm. I mean, what are we really talking about? Yeah, you know, so design, right? A lot of times folks think about just kind of pretty colors and so forth. And we have some of those, right, in the, in the, in the new product. But the bulk of the investment had gone into 
how we create the forecast and analyses on our website. And once you kind of come to the website now with the new product, you're going to have many more options in terms of personalizing, sort of customizing, and following the things that are most important to you, right? For example, if you are an individual interested in a particular region, right, what's happening uh, in the world around uh, that region change, shifts in political uh, power and so forth, and what that means for you uh, if you're a business person, uh, if you have suppliers in that uh, region, which many of our customers are professionals working in, in various capacities for companies, and they need to know what's important to them. Well, the website wasn't very flexible that way before. It was a little bit sort of static in terms of what you could elevate in terms of the most critical topics, themes, regions that individual users are most concerned about. That idea of themes, and that's one thing we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, how does that change the way people are going to consume information and, and, and use our analysis? Our readers are, you know, very, very, very diverse and distributed across the globe. Some are professionals, some are academics, some are in government agencies and so forth. And each one would like to consume insights that they need the most to do their jobs or to get what they need out of Stratford's work. And so we're organizing our content in terms of broader themes. If I were to go to an average sort of a news site, whatever, I might just see a whole bunch of um, individual news stories, and they may be by different folks with different points of view and so forth, but that's not what Stratfor really does. Stratfor provides a framework and a context for folks to understand the world, and so our themes are a big part of that, right? Because we do forecasts, right? Decade forecasts, annual forecasts, quarterly forecasts. Um, those forecasts have themes, and um, our analyses map to those themes. And so I, as a user, will now be able to take advantage of this taxonomy that sort of weaves together the most important events, the most important analyses, the trends and changes and shifts, and not view any particular event in and of itself, but through the navigation, through the user experience, be able to see how that event or that topic is tied to a broader movement in the world. It's very exciting, and we're looking forward to seeing this here in the, this spring. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, give us an idea of what's to come. You're welcome. Thank you. And here with me now is senior Eurasia analyst Lauren Goodrich. And joining her as well, we've got economic and Europe analyst Mark Fleming-Williams. And they'll both be talking to me about how Russia has been trying to uh, influence the world, should we say. So, Lauren, Mark, we've seen a lot of evidence of Russia kind of um, spreading its tendrils in propaganda and misinformation campaigns globally, but through modern technology. Uh, I guess the question I have is, what's Russia doing and how is it doing it? Yeah, so Russia... Its greatest weapon is not its military. It's not its nuclear threat. Its greatest weapon is its disinformation campaign right now. Um, We have seen the Kremlin increase funding for, quote-unquote, foreign media spread and foreign information spread. Um, It's been quadrupled in just this past year. Um, That's a lot of money going towards something like that. This isn't a new tactic out of the Russians, of course. I mean, the Cold War playbook was pretty much based on disinformation campaigns around the world, but also um, information campaigns to back certain political causes. Um, I guess you would say the really big example from the Cold War was back when 
Moscow really supported the leftist groups across Europe and the United States, particularly the environmental groups that spurred up a lot of protest movements and really destabilization efforts um, across Europe and in the United States. And so that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing Russia spread information and disinformation um, via social media, via spreading its uh, media campaign through its two giant uh, media outlets, RT and Sputnik. And we're seeing this spread really gain momentum and have some legs and is really running across um, Europe and the United States right now. So, so to give us some idea of scope, what countries, I mean, I guess specifically like in the Russian heartlands and Central Europe, have we seen being affected, but also what countries are we likely to see influenced in the future? We're seeing a lot of influence, um, of course, across the former Soviet states. However, there's some really big targets that Russia is really paying a lot of attention to at this moment because they're political hotspots. Um, the United States, of course, um, was one of them back in the election. And now we're seeing a really big focus on areas such as like the Balkans and the upcoming election in France, of course. So this obviously came to a fore in the most recent U.S. election scandal when there were accusations that Russia had insinuated itself uh, through its cyber capability in the actual elections. And I know that there's a concern now looking forward to another democracy that is is central to Europe, uh, and that is France. Um, I guess, Mark, to what extent can Russia actually influence French elections? Well, that's the big question. Um, So first of all, we see that Russia very much uh, wants to. Um, We've got evidence that they're they're trying to. I mean, the the Russian outlets such as Sputnik have been provided a home to to, uh, news stories which have cast aspersions on on candidates which um, Russia is not so favourable to. There are studies that suggest that the internet bots on Twitter are all working overdrive to support the candidates that Russia does support. Um, so So there's a lot of evidence to say that the Russia is trying to affect um, the French elections and uh, the French seem to be taking the bait um, to a large extent. I mean, for example, a, a, a story which was run by Sputnik which um, cast aspersions on, on the status of, of Emmanuel Macron, um, who's, the, who's the front runner, his, his relationship um, with his wife and, and, and suggested that he may be ha- having a homosexual affair. He was actually forced to um, deny those allegations, and his spokesman has has claimed that um, his campaign has been the subject to repeated cyber attacks from Russia. And even at a at a government level, the French Foreign Affairs Ministry has condemned Russian interference in elections. Um, the next French defence meeting is going to be on on the Russian baleful Russian influence in French politics. The the French are, are worried about this, and they are they are sensing and seeing and feeling that that Russia is 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 attempting to affect the elections. So that is is happening. I mean, the interesting thing is that it's it's there are ways that you can discern Russians being able to have an effect, and there are ways that that you can't. In that, for example, the centre right candidate Francois Fillon is currently struggling in the in the polls and uh, facing demands to, that he should pull out um, as a result of a scandal um, under which his wife was working for him and, and taking a salary, and there are aspersions cast as to how much work she was actually doing for him. That is a scandal which is which is taken down a very leading candidate for the French elections but similar scandals which um, have blown up around um, the, uh, the the more far-right candidate uh, Marine Le Pen just haven't landed and, and haven't affected her in the polls and she seems to, to be marching steadily onwards as much as she has been for the past um, f- you know four years and we're seeing Russian media really um, support Le Pen's drive. Um, We're also seeing Russian media kind of blatantly 
push a lot of these stories against the other candidates, such as Russian media has been really pushing the claim that Macron is a U.S. agent, for example. We're seeing Russia really kind of rally around one candidate at this time, but it's not exactly like they care about Marie Le Pen and that they actually want her to win. It's more that we're seeing Russia just try to sow chaos. The disinformation campaign isn't always targeted on a single person or personality. That can be true from what we've seen out of um, the current U.S. administration to where many people would argue that, you know, Russia really wanted Trump to win. But since then, we haven't seen, you know, this great detente between Russia and the United States. And instead, we've seen the U.S. media really turn on Russia. And so there isn't overplaying your hand if you get the candidate you want out of Moscow. And so instead, I think that Russia is much more focused on, okay, how much chaos can we sow in these countries so they're more internally focused on themselves instead of focused on Russia, as well as for a country like France, um, how much chaos can we sow in so the divisions within Europe as a whole start to really deepen? Uh, no, I agree. And there is a certain amount of attempting just to just to sow anarchy and, and chaos. Um, but no, the interesting thing is that um, Le Pen has, has held strong. But and going back to whether the whether the Russians are actually have been able to, to take down candidates that they're not so favorable towards Macron, who is the who's the, the candidate we've mentioned a couple of times now, um, is still the favorite to, to, to win this election. And he is very much I mean, Le Pen, we've talked about her, her, her closer links with Russia and, and potential loans that have, have come to, to her party in the in recent years. Fillon, who is the man who's just suffered this this great scandal was a prime minister along with um, Vladimir Putin at the, in the, at the end of the last decade and has m- a much more favorable view of Russia than, than a lot of other French politicians and has has um, talked against sanction, sanctions in the past. So um, in theory, the Russians would want um, either Fillon, if not Le Pen, then perhaps Fillon to win. But um, it's Macron who is who is currently gaining out of all this all this all this chaos and all this anarchy. So I agree that that uh, potentially that casting aspersions even on on Macron, even if he wins, will could potentially undermine France in the long in the long run. Um, but but the interesting thing is that the Russians are attempting to uh, affect this election, but it's not entirely clear that they're succeeding at the moment. Yeah, and Russia has to be really careful because it can't overplay its hand. And I think that that's something that we are seeing in other areas, such as the United States, in which now Russia is really becoming the the spotlight for global disinformation campaigns. And that's something that could really create a global pushback on Russia. Um, We're already seeing centers across Europe start to pop up on how do we counter Russian propaganda and disinformation and information spread. And then we're also seeing Moscow at home start to rethink how um, robustly they want to use their propaganda campaigns, even on their own people, just because um, there is starting to be some of that population pushback on Moscow on, okay, we're not complete idiots. We understand that you're trying to influence us. Well, it sounds like as much as Russia is attempting to pursue its strategy of disinformation overseas and actually destabilize elections where it can, Moscow is going to have to look closer to home in the coming months and years as it goes through its own election process. So, Mark, Lauren, thank you so much for joining me here today to, to explore this complex issue. And certainly we look forward to upcoming analyses on this from Stratfor.com. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Stratford Talks. If you'd like to dig deeper into the underlying implications of France's upcoming elections, Russia's efforts to influence the outcome and the future of the European Union, we'll include links to the latest Stratfor analyses and forecast in the show notes. We'll also include a link to more information about the next generation Stratfor experience coming this spring. 
If you have a question or a comment about the podcast, or even an idea for a future episode, let us know. You can reach Stratford Talks at 1-512-744-4300, extension 3917, or by email at podcast at stratford.com. And don't forget to leave us a review. We appreciate your feedback and your review also helps others discover the podcast. It just takes a few moments and you can leave a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to the podcast. And for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis and forecasting that brings global events into valuable perspective, visit us at stratfor.com or follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. Thanks for listening.